0: Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into its Facebook or Twitter accounts. A big thank you to Monique for the last three hours of Out on the Patio. She'll be back next Wednesday from 4 to 7 p.m. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight you're joined by Dan Salmon. Hello. Laura Summers. Hey there. And I'm Vanessa Taholka, so thanks for tuning in. We're going to be speaking later in the show with Sasha Molitoritz about his new book, Net Privacy, How We Can Be Free in an Age of Surveillance. It's super topical and we're very excited to have a fresh workout in this space in Australia. Can't wait to chat with him. Plus, we're going to hear how the new Design Congress think tank is researching the impact of new technologies with an old uh, bite pal, Cade. So we're very stoked to have him back on the show. Before we get there, as always, we want to cover some of the news of the week. What's been happening?
1: Well, did you guys know that we have the fastest internet in the world? What do you
0: mean, we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're pulling my leg. I am. Well, no, I'm not. Ta- I, I'm pu- pulling your leg somewhat. I'm giving you a slight tickle. Um, so, some researchers from Melbourne's very own Monash, Swinburne, and RMIT universities have uh, worked together to log a data speed of 44.2 terabits per second under lab conditions, which is. At the moment, a the the world record for fast uh, download speeds. Um, that's uh, so
0: it takes lab conditions for us to achieve incredible internet rates. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I th- Ooh, ouch! But you know what? It, it might be good to uh, to seek out some some of the researchers who are involved with this. I'd love to kind of unpack it a bit more. But um, Basically, uh, it looks like unpacking that they were... it, maybe. Unpa- oh, God, that was terrible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, no, like, they were using devices that replace uh, about 80 lasers found in some existing telecoms hardware. Um, a single piece of equipment is known as a microcomb. It was, it was planted and tested outside the lab using existing infrastructure. So it was used under kind of, you know standard conditions obviously you know it was it was optimized so that they could say hey it was really fast but um I, you know it's good to know that a fast internet in australia is possible even if it isn't something that we get uh in our homes
0: <laughs> oh i look forward to someone coming and selling us laser internet oh, that would God, be great that
1: would be awesome well, <laughs> look, if, if it's anything like the laser teleporting of light i'm all i'm all
0: for it
2: absolutely um Talking of teleporting and lasers and funny things, there's also been some news with the the internet's favorite way of expressing its emotions, animated GIFs. (laughs) I'm sure you all saw the news about Giphy, one of the major platforms for hosting animated GIFs, was recently purchased by the tech behemoth. Um, And who was it? It was Facebook, of course, (laughs) perhaps unsurprisingly. And also perhaps... Somewhat surprisingly given that it was only about seven years ago that they refused to support animated gifts, and perhaps mm. were pushing back against the tide of um, popular opinion for some time there. Um, but yes, um, as, as it has been acquired by Facebook, uh, there has been some concerns about their use of the data that will be generated by the gifts, and particularly there's been some concern about their plans that have been released to add some tracking information to the GIFs, um, which will be used unsurprisingly for uh, for advertising purposes. Um, So each search and GIF you send with Giphy will become a beacon that allows the company to track how and where the image is being shared as well as the sentiment the image expresses. Um, So I suppose... Uh, let's all just do some Black Mirror brainstorming about all the ways that could go wrong. Well, <laughs>
0: yeah. why... Can you imagine how sentiment analysis is going to go wrong on the peach emoji, for example? Oh, you know, it's like, which, which definition of, of sentiment do you take?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's must... lots, of, lots of double entendres. Sorry, Dan, go. No,
1: I was just to say, why must Facebook, like, ruin everything by making it mineable data? I just don't get it. Do that, do... Well, what's... They've already got yeah, millions what's... of points of data on data this. Do they really need what we use <laughs> our gifts for as an extra bit? <laughs> Sorry.
0: I think this is partly to do with um, their audience being an aging part of the population, Dan, and, and them wanting to tap into the youth. Oh, the but youth. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting how the tracking information that's come out now and how they plan to to use the GIFs, um, is uh, contradicting some of the early theories about their plans uh, for the purchase, which were that, oh, gosh, you know, this could be an anti-competitive move. They could stop their competitors from using the Giphy platform. Now that they're going down this beacon path, it does seem really unlikely that they would want to restrict the use of it at mm. all. So, that that's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to think about, like, GIFs. GIFs are a different thing. Like, they're not exactly images and they're not emoji. They don't have a standard that, like, is a sort of uh, between platform accepted state. So they're this thing that we're all very convenient, conveniently used to and use an enormous amount. But then the question of, like, what compromises we may need to accept in order to be able to continue to use. I mean, I'm obsessed with parks and Rec gets <laughs> animated reactions everything leslie nope does is
0: just like my jam <laughs> <laughs> they are so trend-based aren't they and oh. i think actually the most interesting information could be around the waxing and waning and the fortunes mm. of various styles of giffies. Yeah. yeah right remember like the the
2: thumbs up baby like or the like punching baby like those things you know they had their moment in the sun and then they went away again so yeah um but yeah look i i think you know in the scope of privacy concerns, maybe not the most burning issue, but also possibly something to keep an eye on and
0: we'll see what what develops. Well, we can um, run that by Sasha later in the show and, and see, see what he thinks. Good point. Hey, in related news, Zoom temporarily disabled the Giphy integration in their chat feature uh, just days after the Facebook acquisition was announced. Uh, They were saying it's just to do with unspecified security issues and that just seems to be another Zoom announcement day after day. So, there you go. Not yeah, mean, to they're,
2: of they're probably sensitive, given that they've had a number of security and privacy issues, and particularly like since COVID happened and people have been home using it obsessively. So I suspect they're just covering their bases and trying to make sure that nothing unexpected happens. But we have some other big, exciting tech news that I really want to talk to you before we bring on our first guest, Absolutely. which is, um, Vanessa, I would like
0: you to talk to it. Oh, oh come the, on. You know, All right, space girl. Well, tomorrow, over a decade of work by NASA and SpaceX is literally launching. So there'll be a private spacecraft carrying a couple of veteran NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. Now, once they're up in the air, that's about a 19-hour journey. We think we have it tough in Australia, getting to the other side of the planet, but the International Space Station, it definitely is up there in, in the hours to get there and excitingly, they'll be streaming a whole lot of this. So the pre-launch coverage um, of the Demo 2 mission will begin at 2.15am our time um, on Thursday morning. So tomorrow morning, 2.15am. And the actual launch, Laura, you're saying is is going to be... It's going to be six
2: thirty three in the morning our time, which is four thirty three in the afternoon on I think that's Eastern Coast U.S. time. Yeah. Um, and I and I expect that there'll be at least a good like twenty minutes lead up and twenty minutes post launch that'll so be worth watching. So if you feel like getting up early in the morning, um, there's several firsts that are to do with this launch. It's the first fully private um, like space launch. It's also the first uh manned launch that SpaceX has been totally in control of um and it's also the first American astronauts that have been put up since the ending of the space program I think in 2011
0: so it's it's, a really cute flag exchange thing happening because the last time Americans were up there they left a flag and they said next time we're up we'll come and take it back and that is cute exactly
2: Talk about a little bit of long-term planning, hey?
0: (laughs) I really like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look, so pretty much all in all, NASA and SpaceX will be streaming um, for almost 24 hours. So it goes until 1.30 a.m. our time Friday morning. Uh, So that's, you know, there's something in it for everybody. No matter what time you're available, you can just do a little dip in, um, maybe let your your work meetings tomorrow know what's going on just to spice things up a little bit.
1: Yeah, what what are what are they going to be streaming? Like, is it going to be footage from inside the spacecraft, or is it just going to be from like like the front, like with those planes where you can just see where you're going? Do we know what they're actually? They going usually to have?
0: switch between all the different views. Okay. So the pre-launch coverage often has little interstitials of the preparation that they went through. Interestingly, you know, obviously COVID nineteen's been happening. Um, astronauts have to quarantine before going to the space station anyway. Norm- Molly, that's a two-week period. This time they've been quarantined since the 13th of May, so they've just extended that a little bit to be super sure Mm -hmm. that we're not going to get COVID-19 in the International Space Station. Who would have thought you have to think about these things? Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Very much
1: so.
0: Um, there's also a whole lot of interesting um, information around um, the autopiloting and regular piloting of the shuttles, and it's kind—they of, compare it to commercial aircrafts these days. They're so, like a lot of it's built in. There's not a lot we have to do manually, but obviously you can switch it all mm. over to manual if you need to, and it's all—I don't know—I find it all very interesting. Mm.
1: It's very
2: cool. Well, the the entire sw- words—the entire swap to the SpaceX model is to. try and make a more effective, more commercially viable version of, you know, pushing things up into space. Um, and so this is this is a really big deal. This has been many, many years of us w- Watching them like send the the, lo- the the launchers up and seeing them come down and some of them come across and crash and some of them have landed successfully and now they're confident they've done it well enough for en- enough times that it's safe to put a human underneath those rockets. Um, it's a big deal. It's a it's a really exciting moment for space space exploration in general and I think it's an exciting moment to see how. Um, Perhaps market forces are actually creating some improvement in the technology by forcing us to be thinking about things like reusability and and making things more sort of viable and commercially like more accessible.
1: Absolutely. Mm. The beginning of the next space age.
2: That would be exciting.
0: That could be great.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber,
0: hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, it is 7.15 on RRR. You're with Bite Into It with Dan, Laura and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us this evening. I'll throw to you, Laura, to introduce our guest.
2: So we have a wonderful friend and um, alumnus of Bite Into It here to Yay! join us. <laughs> um kade diem who is now live from berlin here to talk to us about his new think tank the new design congress which he founded at the beginning of this year Cade, thank you so much for joining us
3: it is so good to see you all thank you
0: so great to have you uh special um, times when we can reach across the earth and uh it you know actually this has made some things easier this is kind of exciting yeah
3: i'm I'm amazed at how, like, the quality of everything is a lot higher, you know, from, I guess, game streamers and things like that have made, uh, you know, everybody have high quality or higher quality than even like a couple years ago. So, yeah, remote radio, crazy, amazing.
2: Yeah, kind of magic. Um, so, Kate, you you are a designer, technology researcher, all around amazing dude, and you've recently started a new project. Um, I'd love to just get your yeah, get your overarching picture. Like, why did it start? What are you trying to do? What motivated you to sort of, you know, perhaps abandon an easier route of continuing working for someone else and like launch something big and new and possibly a bit scary? Um, I'd love to hear.
3: That's a, a lot of questions all at once, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm overexcited. <laughs>
3: <sorry>. <laughs> but let me try to answer it in like a, a like in a flow, I guess. Uh, you're yeah. right. Um, it is very hard to tell whether the New Design Congress has cursed luck or whether I sort of launched it at exactly the right time. I literally launched it on the 1st of January this year, um, having no idea that within uh, a few months it would be like, uh, you know, I'd be stuck inside my apartment in Berlin uh, and that's been very interesting, starting a non-profit in this environment. Having said that, it's been um, very well received so far. The New Design Congress itself is a is a research group, um, as you said, a think tank. And what we're trying to do is we're developing a, a nuanced understanding of technology's role as a social, political, and environmental accelerant. And what I mean by that is there's... And, and I, we can into a little bit uh, as to why I came across this uh, in a second, but... There's a lot of, in a lot of the discourse that we have today, we tend to see the results of technology and engage with those, especially problematic examples of those, uh, with the underlying subconscious assumption that technology causes these problems. And so what the New Design Congress is doing is it's starting from a perspective where it says, actually, this is not the case. Technology draws from its existing societies and the problems or the parameters of that society. and then uh, it accelerates different properties of them. And then what you see at the end of that is the combination of these of, of these problems or these conditions which have been you know brought to visibility through you know design interfaces, uh, the scale of technology, uh, political power, economics, etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. So a really good example of that, just quickly, would be um, the Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress last year in the United States over allegations around Facebook's role in producing disinformation online. Uh, the questions were based around the, uh, the, the, the company's role in actually creating that or causing disinformation. In doing so, the, the framing was around Facebook by itself. But the disinformation problem that we have worldwide is the result of a set of conditions of uncertainty, rising uh, inequality across the world, um, issues around trust with public institutions, um issues of trust around, around media. Uh, these polarizations are not the result of disinformation, but they are accelerated through the through the like the publishing of disinformation or the broadcast of disinformation. So the problem with that is that, by having that discussion and framing it around Zuckerberg, even though Mark Zuckerberg himself has that, cul- like, the, the, the Facebook has culpability in, in this process, but its culpability is in how it accelerates this problem rather than actually causing it. And so the new design congress is about um, helping people reset that expectation across many different fields, ecologies, supply chains, design interfaces, understanding that how technologies interact with um uh, political systems and social systems and e- and ecological systems.
0: So, Kate, I guess that leads us to what are the breadths of disciplines of the researchers who you're bringing together with this Congress?
3: So, we have um, originally, so originally the first year was meant to be uh, one where we would take some of these core arguments and present them to people. Uh, we got to that were like two events before COVID put a stop to that. Uh, and the second one, the second one was indeed online. But but essentially, what what we do is that we work. Um, we're embedded in a, a number of different communities. Uh, I, we did a I did, we did a research trip to San Francisco. Met with a bunch of different people from across different di- disciplines. I think what's really important here is that what we are trying to do is um, is gain a broader understanding of a variety of positions. Um, we we have ourselves got a set of values around what we what we believe is the ideal future, and that is around um, a greater understanding of systems, it's around uh, bringing voices to um, marginalised communities, uh, it's around uh, bridging or, or, or preventing this runaway or helping to prevent this runaway inequality through a greater understanding of, of the systems that enable it. But specifically, I don't think that we can get there just by embedding ourselves in our same spaces. So. Very critical of um, a lot of Silicon Valley. It spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, um, working with people who we are quite critical of, to try to understand um, more and and try to offer as well that uh, a greater understanding of this. So it's not about it's not about being um, uh, it's about being antagonistic, and but antagonistic in a very and provocative in a very. Uh, constructive and progressive way, and then from that, that's involved, I mean, some of the people that we're working with right now, we've worked with political groups, we've worked with um, uh, large browser companies, we've worked with a number of people. I mean, this has only been going for months, and already, and part of this is also through the fact that it's um, a a sponsored project through, a fiscally sponsored project through an organisation called Simply Secure. Simply Secure itself is a nonprofit out of the United States that deals with um, designing more secure uh, interfaces for applications and products and things like that. They liked what we do, so they've given us the infrastructure that we can uh, that we can use to run as a nonprofit out of the United States, and they've also given us some of the connections that they have within that realm of Silicon Valley. But of course, we're not also just. Stuck in Silicon Valley, one of the best parts about the new design Congress is that it has this excellent bridge that we're trying to build between the European um critical theory, the kinds of things that brings the GDPR into fruition, so on and so forth, the critical eye of technology within Europe, and trying to cross that, cross-pollinate that with the with the um the ambition. Of, um of, of US-based technolo- like the technologists in the United States and they're related and they're not just technologists in, in terms of the people working or embedded within large tech but also those who are deeply critical of that as well um, across multiple frontiers, be it within security, um, social sciences and so on.
2: Um, so this idea, the idea that you are not thinking of technology as the origination of the problem, but rather the accelerator of it. Um, how does that change the way you think about solving the problem? Like, how does that reframe the issue?
3: Yeah, so depending on... We have a number of... Uh, it, it's very, very contextualized. It one um, One thing we are trying not to do in our first year is present... Um, too many solutions to begin with. One of the issues, I think, is that we have this kind of format that's been de- developed in which someone makes a criticism about something online, and then instead of um, the group, collect- or the, the 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 industry that's that, that criticism is targeted towards um, reflecting on that, instead there's a, a discussion around what we can do to solve it straight away. Um, instead, mm-hmm. with the New Design Congress, what we're trying to do is draw upon a number of different... Um, techniques in order to to cultivate a better sense of like systems literacy so we we lean very heavily on a combination of i would say donello meadows the famous environmentalist and systems theorist um who has a very very amazing piece that she wrote in uh, 19 in the the late 90s around how to better understand and simply model um complicated interconnecting social political systems and Marrying that with the theory around um, uh, media, such as Marshall McLuhan's philosophies of, of you know, "the medium is the message," um, mm-hmm. understanding that that, that the, the the tools that we use, the tools that we use, we make the tools, and then our tools shape us. So it's kind of combining these two, uh, these two, amongst many others, into a, a a way of understanding, and then providing space for the people that we work with. To either identify those who have the expertise that they need to start solving problems, or solving problems within their own, within their own product, their own uh, environment, or, or their own policies position. So again, like some of the stuff that we're starting to do now is reach out to um, some European um, public service things like that as well. And that's the the the, 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 broad, the breadth of who we're trying to reach is quite wide. But part of the reason why it's it's so compelling is because we're not necessarily offering solutions. Rather, we're trying to um, take one step back and gain a, and help to cultivate not just for us, not for just for people, but also for ourselves as part of the research, a greater understanding of the systems um, that are at play here. I mm-hmm. just want to just quickly say, like, I, I keep coming back to this this idea that it's impossible to fully know a system like uh, that the world is too complex that supply chains all of this stuff is too complex and I keep challenging that because I think that if you were to go back a couple of hundred years back to when a, a traveling from like I don't know London to Berlin was like an impossibility that only like a handful of people could do or to London to Australia was like a, a like a very uh, particular kind of journey if you know what I mean mm. um, I look at those things and I say. Um, the every like everyday person in that society would have to would struggle with the same level of comprehension of the overall systems of etiquette of how, how people move between cities of, of the kinds of the, of, of the, the the proper processes or the political dynamics or the the this the economics of the Silk Road or things like this, they have the, the, these these problems have scaled, and I don't think that it's necessarily um, uh, I, I think it's very defeatist to say that we can't fully understand these systems from the especially the human created systems that we had not that we can't fully understand them but rather that i think um, we can sort of know them in a way that we can affect them meaningfully
0: mm-hmm. it's I, it's, yeah it's interesting you mentioned that after having you know mentioned supply chain which is a space that illustrates what you're talking about at the moment that we only expect to increase the transparency on our supply chains and that is actually something that's really been driven from the consumer side as well as the the product side you know they want efficiencies we want uh transparency around you know everything that's gone into making something that we have so i i am really happy to hear that you're optimistic about um unpacking uh systems and, and systemic problems i guess
2: and i would argue that sometimes these things are are perhaps less transparent, more by design and less because of necessity. Like that happens because people don't want us to see in, or because people want you to think that the algorithm is very difficult to understand and very opaque and therefore you just don't even look at it properly, (laughs) right?
3: Right, right. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, sorry, go on.
2: Oh, no, I was just going to say I'm, I'm cognizant of time ticking on, and I really wanted to talk to you about one of the specific pieces that I know you've been working on and had planned to um, put into a real-life event, into a real festival okay. this year, um, which is the Treaty of Finsbury Park 2025. Yes. Um, may, I, may I read this intro paragraph? I think it's really Absolutely. fascinating. Yeah. Um, in 2020... NASA prepares a mission to colonize Mars. Alone in the expanse, the desire to set sail into the void is understandable for a frightened globe. A planetary health check reveals the terrible reality. Countless lost species and one million additionally at risk of extinction their erasure a direct result of relentless human activity five years later an interspecies diplomatic mission convenes to negotiate a mutually assured agreement to reclaim, reclaim the battered living mechanical and digital systems for mutual care and respect now tell us more what is this essay what is this event it's so fascinating
3: okay so to begin with this let's take a step back um In 2018, Bruce Pascoe, um, the Indigenous writer in Australia, um, penned an essay for Minjin uh, Quarterly called Australia Temper and Bias. Uh, If you haven't read it, it's an incredible piece. It's a very, very, very powerful um, piece around, uh, I would say, the the weird delusional arrogance of colonialism within Australia. Um, That piece, when I read it, really stuck with me um, because what I saw there was uh, there's a moment in the in the piece where he talks very um, openly about, uh, like he rec- recalls a, uh, the Isaac Beatty and Sir Thomas Mitchell sh- showing up in um, near the Grampians or well, near Melbourne and seeing a whole bunch of indigenous um, a- a- agriculture. And instead of recognizing it for what it is, um, basically just reassigned it to themselves and said, wow, God, our God has left this here for us. And what I found with that was that, that was a really that really stuck with me because to me that was such a a, a, a focused example of I guess the delusions of that of this form of colonialism. Um, again, the piece is great. You should Definitely hmm. read it. The essay is amazing. So a few years later, when I was just about to start um, the new design. Congress, a, uh, an organization, an art gallery in London called Furtherfield, which has been around since, I think, 2004, approached me and asked if I would help to curate a year for their their, their three-year program, Citizen Sci-Fi. And we got to talking, and I mentioned this essay, and we started talking about how there's this disconnect between, we, we see ourselves as alone in the universe, but in actual fact, um, the planet itself is full of intelligent life so while we're sitting here being busy trying to build artificial intelligence or you know this pouring money into programs looking for intelligent life companionship outside in space actually it turns out that the planet itself is absolutely full of intellect that we have for this insane reason this delusional reason recategorized as being uh, not intelligent or not 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 deserving of the same level of companionship or or autonomy or um, protection as ourselves. And to me, what I realized with that was like that there was a really surreal sense of like that there was a number of, of of these distinct points that you could bring together and turn into something that I felt would really frame that in a way that a lot of people would understand. So the idea behind the Treaty of Finsbury Park twenty twenty five was that we would take Finsbury Park, which is a big park in in London, um and working with the people who both um, who, who use the park every day, artists um, uh, there's like a, a group of musicians who play in the park all the time, using that group of people, and then the a, a, an entourage of visiting artists, we were going to take them and collaborate together in the space. And the way that we would do that is through this, this live-action role-play in which each per- person is assigned a fictitious role, um, where the the idea is that we are t- five years in the future, and humanity has undergone this um, calamity and realized that things are that that they've been seeing the world all wrong, like the colonialist vision is is all wrong, and so they then approach the non-human species of the world, be it. Um, animals or plants or insects doesn't matter. Just any non-human species, and they renegotiate this this kind of um, this treaty in which there's a recognition of like the planetary component of the, like the of like a solidarity across the planet in in light of the, this um, this calamity that's happened that's never really spoken about. And so, if, over the course of three days. Um, the, uh, the the participants would be involved in the park. They would be in the space, and then specifically, what we would do is on the day on the second day, for uh, 12 hours, or the the participants within the the exhibition would be basically sealed off inside the park, so they couldn't actually see the park or anything, and they would enter this period of like, negotiations like this playful satirical look at like state ritual state powers of like warring nations coming together and like and trying to hammer things out within a within like a negotiated space and what would come out of that uh, it, uh, those teams would go in they would have all of the material of the park all of the documentation that's ever been produced by the uh, about the park over the course of a couple of hundred years but they would never actually be able to set foot in the park until they reemerged so they would reemerge with a a treaty that they had negotiated together and that treaty was essentially a set of demands and then also a set of artworks that would be agreed upon, completed in a a month or so later and then exhibited as part of the Citizen um, Sci-Fi exhibition. Of course that was meant to happen in only a few months. We'd started um, meeting with park participants or people within the park who had a vested interest in how it worked, the community, things like that Um, and of course then we had to postpone everything until twenty twenty one. but yeah, it, it's this idea of looking at uh, human loneliness and how absurd it is uh, in the face of the fact that we actually are in a beautiful and like in- incredibly intelligent environment. and at the same time, um, that you can repurpose these tools that nation states use around you know ceremony and power and and, and negotiation. You can repurpose those to create these very um, flamboyant and very powerful displays of, of 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 determination and acknowledgement of 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 collective um, existence, if that makes sense.
2: What a beautiful idea, um, Cade. I'm so sorry that we have to do this to you because oh, literally we could talk for another forty five <laughs> minutes. But sadly, we have a very limited show for the amount of time we can interview people. <laughs> Um, I so can
3: I can tell you where where it is. Like, there's more. If this is interesting, I can I can say where it is, and there's an actual paper about this that we that put would be we perfect. put the concept note out.
2: People
3: want great. So if more you go more. to yeah, if you go to newdesigncongress.org, um, there's a link to the mailing list there. If you join, we're actually putting out the the paper again. It's already published. The concept note, which goes into great detail, but also we're going into. I'm going to produce a uh, a newsletter that's that's scheduled to go go out today to describe some of this as well but yeah it, it's hopefully fingers crossed next year and it's one of the many projects of really trying to provoke very new perspectives within a set of draw, drawing from a set of different um expertise you know everything from the connections between people within fitzby park and bruce pasco for example
0: we will absolutely be tweeting that out the bruce pasco article has already gone out and during Reconciliation Week, couldn't think of a better time for that to come up on the show. Thank you so much for your time. We've got to go to a track and then um, we'll be back after the break with a a conversation with Sasha Sasha Molitoritz on net privacy. Thanks so much, Cade. Triple R. It uh, is our pleasure to have Sasha Molitoritz on the line. He is a former journalist, having worked for the Sydney Morning Herald for many years. He's got a PhD from Macquarie University and is now an academic in media, law, and philosophy at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome, Sasha.
4: Oh, stop it. Stop it. You're making me sound smart.
0: (laughs) We definitely need more academics in the sort of space that you're playing in. You've got a new book out. It's called Net Privacy, How We Can Be Free in an Age of Surveillance. It's something we care deeply about on this show. But we sometimes wonder, how do we get other people to care about privacy instead of treating it like a horse that bolted long ago? Sasha, what are your thoughts?
4: Oh, that is... That's a bit of a big question. Um, look, it's it's such a huge issue. Uh, it's something that I started researching in 2013. So I used to work at the Sydney Morning Herald, um, as you say, a long-time journalist, and then thought I wanted to study ethics, and, in, and specifically the ethics of new media. And as soon as I, I jumped into that, privacy just became this issue that was so... Big and so important, and then Edward Snowden emerged, you know, and then all of a sudden we learnt about the NSA and what was going on there. And over time it just seemed that this story of privacy got bigger. So, you know, my background as a journalist kind of worked for me. I had a few other people working on PhDs at the time who were just kind of both interested in what I was doing but also alarmed, how can you do a PhD when your target is moving around so much all the time? (laughs) But, um, yeah, look, just uh, to cut that whole story short, I um, I ended up applying a fairly straightforward ethical principle, which is a Kantian uh, notion, the categorical imperative, that you've probably heard about the formula of humanity, which says that we should never treat anyone else including ourselves merely as a means and I applied that to digital privacy and then came up with a kind of approach to ethics and a, and kind of legal suggestions too because I studied law a long time ago so I, I tried to weave all that together.
0: That's a great answer because I think people are crying out for a framework with which to try and uh, navigate these increasingly complex waters and you know hopefully if we can boil it down to an, uh, a question of ethics. Then, then it should simplify this a little. Um, I saw yeah. you you write that you you built on Immanuel uh, Kant's ethics and his idea of cosmopolitan yeah. uh, sorry cosmopolitanism to argue yep. for a globally aligned approach to protecting privacy. Um, for those of us for whom Kant is a, a distant memory of uh, first to university, I wonder yeah. if you could refresh refresh our thoughts or or you know introduce people to what uh, Kant's principles were on this.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, so as you say, it's very easy to have these concerns about privacy, right, and and, um, to think, to feel like there's something wrong and that there's a problem and we need to do something about it. So for me, um, I, I just, you know, thinking back to when I started looking into this topic, I wanted some sort of grounding, you know, some sort of framework or some basis on, from which to start. And so that, that became Kant for me. Um, so it gives me this normative grounding, to use the ethical language. It's the, the substance that I, that I draw on. And it is that phrase of not using each other or ourselves merely as a means. And so you can carry that through to, to consent, you know, this idea that I'm not going to use you as a means if I get your genuine consent. But, of course, we know that on the Internet, consent is really problematic, because you know the the what do we consent to when we're using Facebook or Instagram or or Zoom you know which is so much a part of our lives now that we're all locked down or semi locked down yes. um so that then took me to this idea that we need um collective consent that was how that's how I've um phrased uh the law And Kant wrote about the united will of the people, so I'm just really drawing on Kant's philosophy and then weaving in some other philosophers and and, um, theorists. But that's the basic idea. So my starting point becomes individual consent. We need to make the mechanism of individual consent really robust. And then, um, beyond that, we need to go to the law. We need decent privacy laws because individual consent's not going to be enough on the internet given the way that data flows so easily. So in Australia, you know, to kind of cut, I guess, to the chase, we just need this really dramatic improvement in the privacy protections we get at law. And sorry, I kind of—I um, think I sidestepped your your question about Kant <laughs> a little bit
0: there. You uh, absolutely have—that's uh, your prerogative. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but uh, oh. look on your on your question about cosmopolitanism, because that's where it leads me. It leads me to this idea which Kant wrote about too of cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism—he didn't make that up, you know—and he didn't make up a whole bunch of these ideas, including dignity, which is the kind of foundation of his ethics. But cosmopolitanism is this basic idea that we need to think of, of each other, uh, of each other as persons, as reasoning agents. And when you extend that out, you know, the idea of kind of having um, nations that treat each other in, in ways that isn't analogous to that, doesn't make sense either. So he kind of took individual ethics and then scaled them up in terms of nations. And nations need to treat each other with respect as well. And so it kind of led him to this idea, um, building on previous yeah. philosophers, of having a, a kind of world government almost, or a kind of, like, you know, in this case, if we're thinking about privacy, you might sort of extend that to something like the International Atomic um, Energy Agency or something like that, some global oversight body that can have some sort of global regulatory oversight into what digital platforms and so on are doing.
2: Um, I'm really curious about this idea of treating people or individuals as not just merely a means to an end, and I'm wondering if you can make that real and ground it for us with an example. Like, what would you? Can you give us an example of a platform that yeah. avoids doing that, or maybe at doing it poorly?
4: Uh, yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, for me, privacy is is it. But if you get um, if you get a social media platform and its its business model is to access your data in ways that you aren't aware of, and even data that you think you haven't shared, and then to use that data for its own profit, then, you know, that is treating you merely as a means. And, you know, one really clear but kind of um, esoteric example in a way is Cambridge Analytica. You know, it's really hard to get your head around what was going on there, but the simple design flaw uh, is that, Facebook at the time allowed the developers of apps access to all the details of the people who were using the app, but also to all their friends, you know. So that there's a whole bunch of mm. using people merely as a means going on there.
0: So, Sasha, in these times that we've already alluded to, there's a virus going around. How can people start to balance, um, a, like, a real-life question of, say, the yeah. social obligation they might be feeling uh, to... To download a tracing app or something like that, yeah. and their responsibility Great. to public health versus their personal privacy.
4: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and and it's something that that uh, that I've been wrestling with as a whole lot of privacy people have been. So privacy, like all these other freedoms that we have, and that's how I think of freedom ultimately as a kind of constitutive constitutive part of our freedom. Um, We don't get this freedom and we're not entitled to it in any absolute way, but only in balance with other freedoms. So it's the same for freedom of speech or whatever else is protected and whatever other rights we have. So in this case, if you're talking, when we're talking about um, the COVID Safe app, we need to think about privacy, individual privacy, and also we need to think about public health and we need to balance up, okay, freedom what is actually serving freedom and, and making us free in the way that is meaningful. And I think in this case, you can easily get it right. It's not kind of freedom versus... Sorry, it's not um, privacy versus public health. It's, it's something quite different. It's how do we get the right freedom, the balance of mechanisms, political and otherwise, that give us the freedom. And so, in this case, is privacy protected in an adequate way so that uh, we can minimise this kind of lockdown that we're having, and we can combat the virus successfully, um, and be as free as we might. You know, John Rawls, who was very much a political philosopher from the U.S., who was very much influenced by Kant. Talked about the only restrictions we can have on liberty are for the sake of liberty. Um, I'm paraphrasing, unfortunately, but um, th- that's that's what we get here. You know, You're so yes, there might be a, a certain compromise of privacy required in order that we can not get sick or not get very sick and die or not have to live just just locked inside. Um, and what that presumes, of course, is that the government has got it right with privacy.
0: Sasha, uh, oh, sorry, Laura, go for it. Oh, I was just gonna ask,
2: um, do you want to offer any opinions about the state of the freedoms or the appropriateness of the current COVID app or any of the other apps, like the ones in the UK?
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that's kind of that's that's what the um what I was just uh, referring to there. So with the app, yes, absolutely. I think um you know, from from what I know about the the Google app, the Google and Apple developed app compared to the Australian app is that it's preferable partly because it doesn't uh have a centralized database uh of all mm. the information. I think what the government got right with the Australian app is that it um, it thought about privacy and it's publicly discussed privacy. This is what hasn't happened in the past. This needs to keep happening. So, look, I think on balance, the app is reasonably good on privacy. So, yeah, it's, I, I'd recommend download it and uh, have it on your phone. But, you know, I'm there's a a lot going through my head when I say that because I know there are privacy concerns and it could have been a lot better and it should have been better too. But I think on balance in this Mm -hmm. case, uh, the privacy concerns have been addressed pretty well by the government. Mm.
0: Sasha, a last question for you. Um, I guess it's a chance to give the the final uh, pitch for your book. I wonder, (laughs) do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the future of privacy or would we need to read the book itself to find out?
4: Oh, my God, I don't know.
0: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I hope so.
4: You know, I mean, I feel like I've been talking too much and haven't asked you enough questions. Well, how do you feel? Are you optimistic?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's not our job.
4: (laughs) Look, I, I, um, uh, I have a cautious... Optimism, I guess you yeah, know, but there are people i I teach them I teach at a couple of universities and teach them um, you know they're roughly twenty years old, most of the students, and so I ask them, hey, are you optimistic and for some of them, it's like, yeah, I think privacy's dead, you know just we we don't really need to worry about this and well, we need to worry about it, but there's not much point to it because it's that horse is bolted right i don't, I don't agree with that, I think there's something that we need to protect and there's something we can protect um, we just need to to get a handle on exactly what we're losing and why it matters. Uh, and then we need to take this kind of, this larger approach that incorporates our government, but also some sort of global approach. So that's really ambitious, right? This is, this is something. But what we have at the moment, and this, this is something I haven't mentioned yet, we have this moment, you know, in the wake of Cambridge Analytica last year, uh, in the wake of a few other development things, a whole lot of governments around the world are taking this very seriously and thinking about what they can do. So we have this moment in Australia where we we can do something. Excellent. Well...
0: I'll, um I encourage people to read the book. I can't wait to get my hands on it. It is called Net Privacy. We've been speaking to its esteemed author, Sasha Molitoritz. It's published by New South Books and McGill Queen's University Press and available, and we would expect all good bookstores out there. Sasha, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank
4: you. And there's a free excerpt on Crikey if you want to get a, get a
0: bit of a taste. Brilliant. That's, that's all right, that's a great recommendation. We'll try and... Uh, tweet that out thanks for your time this evening cool thank Um, you thanks for having me before it's absolute pleasure yeah so this evening look we've we've played our music we've had our promos we're up to the last little bit and having the nasa themed show that we've had we thought we'd ask what is quarantine like for nasa uh and very quickly we found an amazing article about NASA's Curiosity, which is run by a little team who've all had to move to working from home, just like the rest of us. However, for them, a little bit more challenging. Some of their challenges have included that they need to work with um, incredibly huge 3D images from Mars and they usually study them through special goggles. They use um, PCs that are really stacked up like uh, advanced gaming computers and they've had to switch to simple red-blue 3D glasses. So I want you to picture the Mars rover team with the old-fashioned paper (laughs) 3D glasses. Brilliant image. Like a 90s 3D movie. (laughs) (laughs) We're super excited about that. But if you want to read more about that, do check out the uh, NASA website and look up their Curiosity team because it's pretty cool. Uh, Thanks to our guests this evening, Kay Deem and Sasha Molitoritz. There's much more on the At Bite Into It Twitter. Thanks so much for listening this evening. We've been Bite Into It and we'll be back next Wednesday. It's been Laura, Dan and...